All right, morning, everyone. Good to see all of you. If you'd like to open your Bibles to Luke 14. The title of this morning's sermon is What Was Lawful on the Sabbath? On Sunday mornings, we're working our way through Luke's Gospel verse by verse, and we're beginning chapter 14. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We'll look at 1 through 6, verses 1 through 6 this morning. Luke 14, verse 1. One Sabbath, when he, this is Jesus, went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him, before Jesus, who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then Jesus took him, the man with dropsy, and healed him and sent him away. And Jesus said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. You may be seated. Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for the record of Christ's life in the Gospels. I think we're encountering another um, passage dealing with Jesus healing on the Sabbath. There seem to be so many of them, and, and uh, obviously that you, obviously you want to drive home some truth to us about his miraculous work for people on this day. And we, we see what he did with these men, or with the, with the man with dropsy, but also what he did with the religious leaders, the truth he revealed by uh, healing this man and the question that he asked. And I pray, Lord, that as we look at these verses, that your word would be accomplishing that work of sanctification in our hearts. I, I think about Jesus saying, your word is true, sanctify them with your truth, your word is truth. And so what a blessing it is that as we're here and as your word is going out and washing over us, it is conforming us into the image and likeness of your son. And so we pray for that for every believer who's here this morning. And we would ask that if there be any unbelievers, that today would be the day of salvation, that you, that you would open their hearts to the gospel, grant them repentance and faith in Christ, and that they wouldn't leave here unregenerate in their sins, Lord, but that you, you would grant them eternal life. Use me as your vessel during this time for you really to meet with your people. I pray this would be a time that they hear from you and not, not primarily from me. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So many people after worship service on Sunday, they look for fellowship with others. And so it's common that you'll have a worship service and you'll invite some, over, some people over for lunch. And in Jesus's day, something similar would happen. People would have, but instead of on Sunday, it would be on the Sabbath. Instead of on the first day of the week, it'd be on the seventh day of the week. After worship, they would, uh, not, in, not in a church building like we have, but in synagogues, which is really what church buildings were birthed from, from the synagogues in Christ's day, they would invite people over. And look what happened on this particular Sabbath. We see a type of fellowship, like I just described, and an invitation Verse 1 says, One Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. So there had been a synagogue service, it seems, and some of the Pharisees had invited Jesus over to eat with them. The Pharisees were that ortho, excuse me, ultra-Orthodox sect of Judaism. Uh, they lived by a very strict code, and with the exception of a few of them, such as Nicodemus and then that man in the previous chapter who warned Jesus that his life was in danger at the hands of Herod. Most of the Pharisees opposed Jesus. He actually experienced his greatest opposition from them. But even though Jesus had some of his greatest conflict with the religious leaders, we still see that he was willing to do what in this account? Yeah, spend time with them, go eat with them, have fellowship with them, associate with them, not because he wanted to be one of them, but because he wanted to minister to them. I would say help them. I think his response was very loving, uh, knowing that they were plotting his death, which is what occurred on many Sabbaths. He was still willing to go and spend this time with them. So you're tempted to say, well, how kind of it? I mean, if the Pharisees opposed Jesus, how kind of it was this Pharisee and the other Pharisees with them? Because even though one Pharisee is mentioned in verse 1. We see later that there were many Pharisees who were present as well as some lawyers. And so you look and say, well, wow, how wonderful. I mean, considering many of the Pharisees despised Jesus, that they would invite him over for a meal this day. Is that what happened? Is this a show of their kindness toward him? No, not at all. 
They invited Jesus over, but it was not for fellowship. It says so they could do what with him? Yeah, they could watch him. And why were they watching him? They just want to see him heal this man. They want to see him do something that they can accuse him of, heading toward him being arrested and then even basically they want to accuse him and then condemn him. And the Pharisees, they had very good reason by this point to watch Jesus on the Sabbath because it seemed to be his most popular day to heal people. There uh, is, are more examples of Jesus healing on the Sabbath, it seems, than on any other, all the other days combined. Listen to how busy Jesus has been on the Sabbath up to this point. I'll go through these instances or examples quickly. In Luke 4, verse 31 to 37, he cast a demon out of someone on the Sabbath. In Luke 4, 38 to 39, he healed Peter's mother-in-law from high fever on the Sabbath. In Luke 6, verses 1 through 5, remember he allowed his disciples to pluck grain on the Sabbath. And why did that upset the religious leaders? Because that's doing what? That's harvesting or farming which is work. In Luke 6, 6 through 10, he healed the man with a withered hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath. In John 5, 1 through 9, he healed the lame man on the Sabbath. In the previous chapter, Luke 13, 10 through 17, you remember he healed that woman who was bent over for many years on the Sabbath. And then in John 9, he healed the blind man on the Sabbath. And so because of Jesus's previous actions, they expect that this Sabbath is going to be no different and he's going to heal this man with dropsy. Look at verse 2. Behold, there was a man before him, before Jesus, who had dropsy. Luke, the author of this gospel and also the author of the book of Acts, was a physician. He was Paul's traveling companion. He actually wrote Luke and Acts when Paul was in prison after their journeys together. He's writing Luke's gospel, or the gospel named after him for this man, Theophilus, to give him a record of Christ's life. And so it's interesting, he'll give a little more precise diagnosis of people's medical issues than you'll find from the other gospel writers. And so it seems that in Luke's professional opinion, he's able to look at this man and say that he has dropsy, which is an abnormal accumulation of water uh, in different parts of the body. It could be because of kidney trouble, could be because of a heart ailment or liver disease, and it was very painful, and then it would leave parts of your body very swollen. Could be your leg, could be your arm. Typically, there was an amount that was um, contained in the face. The Greek word for dropsy, it comes from the words for face and water, or, or water and face, or water and countenance, because the disease would often make people look very bloated in the face. What do we call dropsy today? Is it edema? Am I saying that correctly? It's not edema, is it? Edema, is that the correct word for it? So you look at this and you say, well, this is really gracious of the Pharisees. Not only do they invite Jesus over, they must have pitied this man because he has this difficult condition that he's been dealing with. And so uh, they have him over for lunch too. They probably just wanted to bless him. Is that what's going on? No, not at all. And in fact, we know that's not the case, not just because Jesus was there, but if you were to walk into this luncheon you would, um, and see the Pharisees there, it would make sense that Jesus was there because you would say, well, Jesus is a very prominent and important person, which would be the kind of person that the religious leaders would invite over for a meal like this. But you'd be very confused by the presence of this man with dropsy. Because what was the thinking in Jesus's day if people suffered with some sort of disability or disease or deformity? Yeah, they've been terrible. They've behaved so wickedly that God would punish them with this affliction. So it was really pretty brutal. To, it's brutal to have a disease or affliction in our day. But imagine how terrible it was to have a disease or affliction in Christ's day when they didn't have the medical treatment we have, but then your, your life is made even worse because everyone who sees you thinks that you have been um, terribly wicked to deserve such a punishment from God. And so my point is, this man with dropsy would typically be the very last person that the Pharisees would ever invite to a lunch like this because of their self-righteousness and believe that they should not associate with sinners. That was, in fact, if you remember, the main criticism of Jesus is that he would fellowship or associate with sinners. And so they think this man with dropsy is a terrible sinner. There's no way that they would ever have someone like this over to their home for a meal. 
But they invited him over, which, so I guess if you write in your Bible, you can do this. You can circle the words, him who had dropsy, and then draw a little line and write bait. Put him who had dropsy, draw a little line and write bait, because that's what this man is. More than likely, the religious leaders invited him over to provoke Jesus to heal him, which they were going to see as a violation of the Sabbath. So one thing that really kind of stuck out to me that I was reflecting on was we tend to think that the religious leaders didn't really know Jesus. We would think that it was uh, sinners and tax collectors who had this close and intimate relationship with Christ, would know him well, would know his heart and his character. But apparently, it seems that the religious leaders also knew Jesus well and knew his character well enough that they knew that if they were to put a hurting person in front of Jesus, he almost wouldn't be able to control himself, and he would end up healing this person and violating the Sabbath. And so it's pretty um, heartless of the religious leaders. It's pretty hypocritical. Let me be clear about how you can see their heartlessness and you can see their hypocrisy. The heartlessness is shown Well, let me ask you this. Do you see how the religious leaders were simply using this man? I mean, they just wanted him to be part of their wicked plan so that they could catch Jesus do something they, they thought was wrong. If they put this hurting man in front of him, there's no way he'll be able to help not healing him. And their hypocrisy can be seen if in trying to answer this question. Okay, let me ask you something. Did the religious leaders want Jesus to heal this man? You could say yes or you could say no, right? You could say no. They didn't want him to heal this man because then Jesus would be violating the Sabbath, which is something he shouldn't do, and they would not want to see him violate the Sabbath because then they would be seeing him do something wrong. But we do know that they actually did want to see Jesus heal this man because they did want to see him violate the sabbath at least in their in their interpretation of what would violate the sabbath so that they could then condemn him do you remember when the when jesus was before the high priest and the high priest tears his clothes actually something that was forbidden in the law so when he tears his clothes because he's acting outraged when jesus acknowledges that he's the son of god the the high priest by tearing his clothes he's He's acting like he's so angry at what Jesus just acknowledged that he's the Son of God, that it's worthy of him manifesting this outrage by tearing his clothes. Well, what's the irony associated with this high priest tearing his clothes? He actually heard exactly what he wanted to hear, which was Jesus acknowledged that he's the Son of God so that he will have the evidence to send to accuse Jesus of being a blasphemer and then see him be executed because they'd become so jealous of him. So there's terrible hypocrisy here with the religious leaders, and we're getting to see it as they put this man with dropsy before Jesus and then just sit back, acting like they wouldn't really want Jesus to do this, but in their heart wanting more than anything at this moment to see Jesus do this. So look what Jesus says in verse 3. Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, "'Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not?' So interestingly, Jesus didn't immediately heal the man. He first pauses and asks this question. And it's worded sort of oddly because it says that Jesus responded to them. And why is that odd to read that Jesus responded to them? There's no record of them saying anything to Jesus. And so if Jesus didn't respond to their words, what was he responding to here? He was responding to their thoughts, or he was responding to what was in their hearts. He knew what they were thinking. He knew what they wanted him to do, and were pretending like they wouldn't want him to do. And so he, he John 2, 24, he knows all men, and so he responds to that. And it really should not have been a difficult uh, question for them to answer. Look at the words, is it lawful? Is it lawful? And I also want you to notice in verse 3, this is where we're told that there were lawyers who are present. Now, this is important. When you read about the lawyers in the Gospels, or the scribes, or the Pharisees, these are the religious leaders, but you cannot think of lawyers in a courtroom. Instead, these were lawyers who, like the first three letters in their name, uh, LAW law, would reveal that these were the experts in the law. 
They weren't people that were judging trials, but they were individuals who had the, the knowledge to, to share what was and wasn't lawful. In fact, the lawyers, and this, I'm not exaggerating, they actually spent most of their time sitting around answering this question, or they would sit around determining what is or isn't lawful. So for us, for Jesus to say is a lawful, we don't think much about it, but he's actually speaking their language. He's asking the lawyers the exact question that the lawyers always ask themselves and ask each other when they get together. It is literally their job as lawyers to determine what is and isn't lawful and have that written down, and then it's the job of the scribes to then write that down and pass that along, and for the Pharisees to conduct religious services. And so my point is this. There's nobody else in the entire world who should have been able to answer Jesus's question easier than the lawyers who were present, because they have spent their lives, it is their profession, to be able to answer what is and isn't lawful. But they couldn't answer it. And they couldn't answer it because if they said that it's unlawful to heal on the Sabbath, then how are they going to look? If they say it is unlawful to heal on the Sabbath, how are they going to look? Just terribly cruel and unmerciful. Because it's one thing for the lawyers to sit around and have kind of an intellectual or academic dialogue about what people should and shouldn't do on the Sabbath. But it's another thing entirely to then apply those conclusions in everyday life when it's going to affect people as dramatically as it would in this instance. It's, 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 another thing, it's one thing to have a theological discussion about whether people should be healed, but it's another thing entirely to have someone who could be healed and then say, no, don't heal that person. So they knew how cruel they would look if they answered Jesus right now. And, the other th- and you say, well, who would they look cruel to? You know, they look cruel to the other Pharisees. No, the other, the other side of this, which should probably be shared, is that there's very little that the Pharisees didn't try to do publicly. So even their meals were open to the public. So people would come, and even if they couldn't take part in the lunch, they would watch them so that they could listen to them. And so when Jesus asked this question, the Pharisees aren't really worried about looking bad in front of the other Pharisees and lawyers or scribes who are present, but they are worried about looking bad in front of the public who has come to observe this, which is why the public would have looked on and any reasonable person would have said, what in the world is a man with dropsy doing here at this luncheon? He would have stood out and it would have looked very bizarre. But so you say, well, okay, so they can't say that it's unlawful, but they also can't say that it's lawful. They can't say that it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath for two reasons. If they say that it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath, then they're going to be permitting Jesus to violate the Sabbath, or at least their interpretation of it. Or they're going to be saying that Jesus can disobey the Sabbath as they have defined it. And then other subtler reason that they couldn't say that it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath is the moment that they say that, the moment the Pharisees say it is lawful to heal on the Sabbath, what are people going to think? Well, why haven't you ever healed on the Sabbath? Why aren't you guys doing this? If it's lawful to do that, why haven't you been doing it? And so if anything, it's going to make them look really bad when they act like people should be healing on the Sabbath, but they can't do it. Jesus is the one who's doing all of this miraculous healing. And so they're really, one commentator, I don't, I don't know that I agree with this completely, but I thought, I thought it was a little bit of a dramatic statement, but he, this commentator talked about how merciful and compassionate Jesus was to sinners and tax collectors, but how completely unmerciful and brutal Jesus was with his questions to the religious leaders because it would put them in these positions where they really had no way to respond um, and not, they either had two choices. I'll make it real simple. The religious leaders either had to make Jesus look good or they had to make themselves look bad. And so what did they choose to do? Because they weren't going to do either of those things. What did they choose? Look at verse 4. They just remained silent. They're like, we can't answer this in any way that doesn't make us look bad or make Jesus look good. And so we will just remain silent. So Jesus takes this man and he heals him and he sends him away. There's nothing fancy about this. There's no dog and pony show, no hocus pocus, no ceremony associated with Jesus's healing ministry. He simply does this. The man is completely well, 
and then he sends him off. And because the man's physical appearance would have been uh, affected by the dropsy, it was a very testable miracle or a testable hearing. It was um, clear immediately that the man had been healed because the, swell, the swelling would have went down. He would have looked healthy, and it wasn't kind of, the, you know, the sort of miracles or healing, and I'm using that loosely or sarcastically, that we hear today where it's like, oh, someone's back is hurt or something. Completely untestable healings or, or miracles that people claim to be performing today. Oh, you know, someone's back or someone's neck or someone has some knee trouble. Well, pretty much you get a room of 10 people together and half of them are going to have one of those ailments, right? And then you say, well, they're healed. And then you start sort of thinking, well, actually, my neck is feeling a little better. My knee is feeling a little better right now. And then these people claim to have performed a miracle. It's nothing like that. This is something where it's obvious right off whether Jesus is a true healer or he is a false healer. And notice Jesus didn't just tell him or heal him and then tell him that he could leave. Jesus could have healed the man and let the man stay, or he could have healed the man and said, you can leave if you'd like. Jesus actually sent him away. Now, I can't say for sure why Jesus sent him away, but my suspicion is it's kind of like this. You've already suffered enough being part of these religious leaders' wicked plan, serving as bait for them to trap me. You've already been misused or abused. Why don't you go ahead and go home and be with people who love you? Why don't you go ahead and be with friends, be with family, people who will celebrate your healing versus being with these people who are actually angry about you being healed. And so to me, it's a sign of Christ's compassion for this man when he sends him away here. Go enjoy your new health and be with people that love you and would never treat you like these religious leaders have treated you. Now, the question, which is the focus of the sermon that Jesus asked, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They thought that it wasn't because they had added so many rules to God's commands, and this brings us to lesson one. It is easy to add rules to God's commands. Lesson one is easy to add rules to God's commands. I think it is bound up in our hearts to be legalists. It is bound up in our hearts to add more to God's law. Listen to these verses explaining the fourth commandment. Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor. Do all your work. On the seventh day it's a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do, not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, male servant, female servant, your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, all that's in them. And then you just keep this in mind, although I suspect you're familiar with it anyway. And then it says, after that, on the seventh day, he rested. Therefore, the Lord blessed the seventh day and he made it holy. Now, working on the seventh day is forbidden. So what is the question that the Jews face? Working is forbidden on the Sabbath. So what's the question that the Jewish legalists will face? Well, what is work then exactly? What qualifies as work? And I don't want to sound too harsh because I do think it would be reasonable to ask this question, but I want to give you an idea of why this became so confusing and actually how truly absurd this became by Jesus's day, because this is my suspicion why Jesus healed as much as he did on the Sabbath. It just seemed that the Sabbath had become this complicated mess, and Jesus came on the scene and is, is trying to straighten it out with all these people. So God's law, let me give you a little history lesson. Originally in written form only, when was God's law first written? Down. Yeah, on the stone tablets, and it's given to Moses. And then it's copied by scribes for centuries. After the Babylonian exile, the religious leaders began developing rules that were in oral form only. And the idea is this. There's this command of God's that we don't want to violate we don't want anyone else to violate it either. So we will add these other rules that prevent people from breaking this command. So now this command has turned into five commands. But then those commands 
or what were initially rules become commands. We don't want to break those commands either, so we're creating other rules to prevent people from breaking those rules or commands that are supposed to stop us from breaking God's command. But then those other rules that we've created also need other commands or rules to prevent them being broken, and then suddenly you have fences, being added to fences, being added to fences. Not, a, not in a day or a week or a year or even a month or, you know, 10 years or something like that. This is over centuries that this is happening, that all of these commands are being added and then they're being passed down. And so they're in oral form only, passed from one generation to the next verbally. The rules are intended to stop people from breaking God's law. But about 200 AD, all these oral commands that had been added to the law that had only been passed down verbally started being compiled and written down in what's known as the Mishnah. And so the Mishnah was a commentary on God's law or a commentary on the Torah. And to give you an idea what the Mishnah was like, there were 30 chapters just on the washing of cups and pitchers and copper vessels. Let me say that one more time. 30 chapters just on how you're supposed to wash dishes correctly. I I couldn't even imagine if you took the strictest mother that she would be able to come up with 30 chapters on how their children are supposed to wash the dishes. Now, when you have as much information as the Mishnah contained, it became very confusing. So in an effort to clarify the Mishnah, the Gemara was developed. And so really the Gemara was a commentary on the Mishnah, which was a commentary on God's law. And so to put the Mishnah and the Gemara together into one volume, the Talmud was created. And I know that we're not familiar with these, so I'll put it in a lesson for you. Lesson two, the Mishnah was a commentary on God's law, the Gemara was a commentary on the Mishnah, and the Talmud combined the Mishnah and the Gemara. So the Mishnah was a commentary on God's law to explain what you weren't supposed to do or how you were supposed to keep it, which inevitably added hundreds or thousands of unnecessary rules that became commands. And then the Gemara was a commentary on the Mishnah, and then the Talmud put all this together. But when you think of the Talmud, I don't want you to think of like a book. Maybe you think of like some really big, thick book, like maybe the biggest, you know, some people, you walk into their house and you can tell they don't read the Bible because it's this really big, fancy Bible that sits on their coffee table, kind of accumulating dust. I don't think that's what God ever intended not to put down if anyone has a decorative Bible, hopefully at least you have another one that you could read. But maybe those are the biggest books you've ever seen in person, right? You can't, that's not even what you can, should think of when you think of the Talmud, because the Talmud was actually a collection of collections. It combined all the material up to that point. And I can't say that it was one volume because it was over 500 books, over 500 books that were separated into 22 columns, 22 volumes. And so it would actually take you a lifetime just to try to read all of this material that man had come up with to add to God's law. Now, keeping that in mind and understanding the effect that that would have had on the Sabbath, let me ask you something. What was the Sabbath supposed to be for man? What was the Sabbath supposed to be? Yeah, a blessing or or a gift to give man rest. You trust God. So you work six days and he blesses you enough or gives you enough that you don't even have to work the seventh day and he still provides for you. So that's why the Sabbath was this issue of faith and way for God to bless his people. Mark 2, 27, Jesus said, the Sabbath was made or given for man as a blessing, not man for the Sabbath. And when it says not man for the Sabbath, it means the Sabbath wasn't supposed to make people slaves. But because of all the rules that have been added to the Sabbath, that's exactly what happened. Interestingly, what should have been the most pleasant day of the week became the most unpleasant. It became the day that people dreaded because it was the day that you had to try to follow all of these rules and people were afraid that they were going to violate one of them. And this brings us to lesson three. The rules added to the Sabbath made it a burden. The rules added to the Sabbath made it a burden. It became exhausting for people because they were consumed with trying to remember all of the different rules or commands 
that they were not supposed to violate. Can I do this? Can I not do this? Is this acceptable? Is this, is this unacceptable? I talked about the Talmud earlier, and it contained, get this, 24 chapters of Sabbath restrictions. So earlier in Exodus 20, I read those few verses about the Sabbath. It only took me, you know, probably 20 seconds to tell you what God said about the Sabbath and the Ten Commandments. The Jewish legalists were able to take those concise, crisp, clear verses from the Lord, four or five of them, and turn them into 24 chapters. John MacArthur said that one rabbi spent two and a half years studying one of those chapters, trying to figure out all of its ramifications. I mean, just imagine that, spending two and a half years of your life not studying one chapter of the Bible, but studying, studying one chapter of a book that's a commentary on another commentary of, the, of God's law. There were 39 categories of activities that were forbidden. Now, that's not 39 activities that were forbidden. There were 39 categories of activities that were forbidden because they were considered work. And then these categories had multiple activities in them that were forbidden. Subdivisions, making for thousands of these meticulous rules associated with the Sabbath. I'm going to just give you a few of them. It took an incredible amount of self-control for me to limit the number of examples of Sabbath restrictions I could give you because some of them were so absurd to me. I really wanted to share them to you, share them with you. But when I was going over the sermon, Katie said, this is just going on too long. You don't need to tell people this many examples. So if you wanted to hear more and you didn't, go tell my wife after service that you were interested in more examples. But here's a few of the rules that they added. You couldn't carry anything that weighed more than a dried fig because that would constitute work, but you could carry half a fig two times. (laughs) cold water could be poured on warm water but warm water could not be poured on cold water you couldn't travel more than 3,000 feet from your home unless it was on a Friday before the Sabbath and you placed your food at the 3,000 foot mark then you could go another 3,000 feet beyond that because where you placed your food became your home considered a home and then you could go another 3,000 feet beyond that Women couldn't look in the mirror on the Sabbath because they might see a white hair and be tempted to pull it out, and that would constitute work. You, <laughs> you, couldn't, you couldn't examine your clothes before you put them on because during the brushing or shaking of them, you might, can, you might kill an insect, and that would constitute work. You could, you could spit on the ground, but if you spit on the ground, you had to spit on a rock or hard surface because if you spit in the dirt, you might be tempted with your foot to rub it in and that would be considered work. And this is probably my favorite. You couldn't tie a rope to your bucket at the well on the Sabbath, but you could tie a knot in your wife's girdle on the Sabbath. And so if you need water on the Sabbath, you could tie a rope to your wife's girdle, and then you could tie your wife's girdle to the bucket, and then you could lower the bucket into the well, okay? So this morning, so I, I, we kind of make light of it because it seems so absurd to us, but I, I cannot tell you how important some of this was to these people because what, what did they think was depending on this? Yeah, their salvation. These are issues of salvation to them. Their righteousness is bound up in their ability to keep what they believe is God. Our, our righteousness isn't uh, determined by our ability to keep God's law. It's determined because in our efforts to keep God's law, we're shown to be unrighteous. But their righteousness wasn't even bound up in trying to keep God's law. It was in trying to keep all these other rules and commands that had been added to God's law. So it was taken very seriously for them. Now, this morning's situation for Jesus, let's just talk specifically about healing because there's kind of two aspects here. There's the potential to violate the Sabbath, and there's the potential to heal or do this work on the Sabbath. And the reason that healing was forbidden, you said, what was wrong with healing? Healing is practicing medicine, which is a profession, and to engage in a profession on the Sabbath would be considered work, and so they couldn't heal. The only exception was if someone's life was in danger, you could do whatever was necessary to keep them alive, but you could not do more than that. So can you imagine all of the scenarios that could be developed where people are wondering, okay, have I done enough to keep them alive, but I don't want to do any more than that because then I would be sinning. So here's a few. If people experienced a deep cut 
and they were in danger of bleeding to death. You could stop the bleeding by applying a tourniquet or a compress, but as soon as the bleeding stopped, you couldn't do any more than that. So you couldn't stitch them up. When you applied the bandage to the wound, you couldn't apply any ointment to it. The, the stitches or the ointment, because, and here's the idea. This sounds so absurd, but here's the idea. If you stop the bleeding, then they're going to live until what? Sunday. They're going to live until after the Sabbath, and that's when you're going to want to stitch them up, and that's when you're going to want to put on the ointment. So as long as they can make it the next few hours, if someone breaks a bone, you could not reset the bone because the person's life was not in danger. They had to deal with that pain until Sunday rolled around. They could, I'm not joking, they could have a bone sticking out or something, being excruciating pain, and you'd have to tell them, I cannot do anything for you because it is the Sabbath, but I will be here first thing when the Sabbath is over to come and set that bone for you. Ladies, you'll be relieved to know that if you went into labor, you could be assisted, but that's because the woman or the baby could possibly die if you tried to delay the labor until the following day. And so if a woman went into labor, then someone could help her, unless it was evident that she was already going to, you know, have the baby, and then you had to leave her alone and give her no more assistance, because her life was not in danger, and the, and the baby's wasn't either. Now, why do you think that they chose a man with dropsy to bring before Jesus? His life's not in danger. He's, he's dealt with this condition for who knows how many years he's been able to make it to synagogue service or to worship. He's been able to come into this luncheon with the Pharisees. So you can look at this man with dropsy and you can pity him, but you also have to acknowledge his life is not in any danger, which means he should not be shown any kindness or compassion whatsoever associated with his condition until after the Sabbath is over. John MacArthur said it was a ridiculously complex system by which you could earn your salvation maintaining all these rules. Your salvation depended on it. That is how these people thought. And here's what's really kind of interesting or something that um, intrigued me. If you think about what the religious leaders did with God's law in adding all of these hundreds or thousands of extra rules to it, you will see that they actually did the opposite of what the New Testament did with God's law. The law contained 600... 13 commands. If you read Leviticus, you can count 613 commands there. Those 613 commands can be summarized in the 10 commandments. So we just went from 613 to 10. We come to the New Testament, and Jesus takes God's law, and he summarizes it in how many commandments? Matthew 22, 35, and 39 the first and greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's the greatest commandment. And then second, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the second greatest commandment. So we just went from 613 to 10 to 2. We go past Jesus's day. And did you know that Paul actually summarized the law even further? He didn't just summarize it to one command. He didn't just summarize it to one um, sentence. He summarized it to one word. Listen to this. Romans 13, 8, He who loves another has fulfilled the law, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Galatians 5, 14, All the law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the New Testament, you go 613, 10, 2, one word. The religious leaders did the opposite of that in just this un, unimaginable way, turning God's law, 613 commands, into 500 books, 22 volumes. Instead of simplifying, they overly complicate. And the second thing, if, if God's law could be boiled down to one word, love, do you see how the religious leaders also did the opposite of that in making God's law what? Unloving. Now, you actually, they stopped the law from being able to do what the law was supposed to do, which is love. And you see some examples of this. This man with dropsy, what was Jesus not supposed to do with him, basically? Love him or be kind to him. And it was the law that they had created that produced that. Think of the situations earlier when other people needed help. Someone, some, a, a tree falls on someone, or someone breaks an arm or a leg, uh, or, or someone's really sick 
and they need something. You can't help them because of the rules that the religious leaders have created. So they actually took God's law that was about love, and they made it unloving. Do you remember, I think it's in Mark 7, there was something called Corbin. I believe that's the only place that this is mentioned. Children were supposed to care for their parents. They were to honor them as God's law commanded and give them money. But according to Corbin, what could children say? If you're, what, what would be the one greater thing you could do with money than give it to your parents? Give it to, to the temple or to God. So they came up with a rule where you could tell your parents, you know what, I can't give you this money because I'm doing something even better with it. I'm giving it to God. But then in the process, they actually held on to the money and kept it. And so that's why Corbin was so attractive. It allowed you to keep money and act like you were doing so for a a good reason. And my point is they took God's law, which is about love, and they made it unloving. And it's so bad because the Sabbath ended up being the opposite of what God intended, and this brings us to lesson four. The Sabbath was about doing good. The Sabbath was about doing good. When I say the word Sabbath, what's the first word that comes to mind? Okay, second to Saturday then. Okay, rest was what I was thinking. And if you didn't say that, that's fine. Katie's going to, I'm going to go home and Katie's going to say, why did you ask that question? There weren't, there's lots of other good answers to that. She always gives me a hard time for that. But when you think of the Sabbath, you probably think of rest. You probably don't think of doing good because doing good sounds a lot like what? Working, which you're not supposed to do on the Sabbath. This could be um, somewhat radical to you. I don't think it's necessarily going to be life-changing, but it is pretty significant to me to understand that the Sabbath isn't primarily about rest. It is primarily about doing good. Matthew 12, 12, Jesus said, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. John MacArthur said, good works were especially appropriate on the Sabbath, particularly deeds of charity, mercy, and worship. When Jesus asked what was lawful on the Sabbath, he was exposing the religious leaders' wrong understanding. The religious leaders were more concerned with the negatives than the positives, more concerned with what you're not supposed to do than what you should do. Jesus was more concerned with the positives. He focused on what you should do on the Sabbath, which is help people and do good. So the Sabbath was about resting, but you wouldn't say that it was, it was also not about not doing good. That's kind of a lot of negatives, isn't it? So I just say this, the Sabbath was about resting and it was about doing good. Now think about this. God himself is, the good, is a good example We know that God rested on the seventh day, but let me ask this. Did he really rest on the seventh day? Psalm 121.3, he who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. God rested on the sixth, on the seventh day in the sense that he no longer created. Creation was complete. But it doesn't mean that God rested and that he stopped doing good. If God stopped doing good, what would we not experience at all? Any grace. And I don't mean us, just believers. I mean believers and unbelievers. It's called common grace. Do unbelievers enjoy much of God's goodness? Absolutely. And they do because God has continued what? Working. He has continued working for us, pouring out or bestowing his grace on us. Listen to this interesting situation. Jesus heals the man at the pool of Bethesda, John 5, 16. The Jews persecuted Jesus. They sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. And then listen to how Jesus defends his behavior. He said, my father has been working until now. And so because of that, I have been working. And so God rested, but continue doing good. And it's made even clearer that we should do good on the Sabbath by Jesus's own words in the next verse. Look at verse 5. Jesus said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day would not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Could you imagine in, 
even in our day, how difficult would it be to pull an ox out of a well? I can't, I can't imagine that. Could you imagine how difficult it would be, how much work it would take to pull an ox out of a well in Jesus's day? And he still says that that's something any reasonable person would do. So his logic, it's, it's simple, but it's also impossible to dispute. Jesus is saying, if it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath by helping animals, then how much more lawful should it be to do good on the Sabbath in terms of helping people who are made in the image of God? Now, what's really interesting, speaking of doing good, is Jesus, what did Jesus appeal to with this question? Think about this. When Jesus asked this question, what did he appeal to? He actually appealed to the religious leaders' goodness. He appealed to their goodness. He said, which of you, having a son or having an ox? And why couldn't they answer this? Because they would. If they had a son or they had an ox that fell in a well, what would they do? They'd get him out. And why would they? Because there's decency in them. As ugly as they act at times, Jesus still knew that there was an amount of decency in them that they would love their children and help them, and they would even love or care enough about their animals that they would help them. So he appealed to the goodness in his listeners. Which of you, if you had a son or ox, wouldn't do this? You're not brutal men. You're not cruel men. You will help your children. You'll even help animals in need. Now, please extend some of that same common sense kindness to needy people. G. Corbin, or, um, G. Campbell Morgan said, thus, while our Lord rebuked the wrong attitude and temper of these men, he did so by appealing to the best within them and calling them to be true to it. His purpose was not of shaming men, but of saving men. And I just think one of the things that challenged me in this is when we counsel people, if we can, what should we appeal to? We should appeal to whatever goodness we can see in them. We should appeal to whatever morality we know is evident in their lives and even tell them, you're better than this. You can be better than this. I know you have been better than this. This, is, this doesn't have to be you to be like this. This isn't, doesn't have to be who you are, at least not in Christ. That's how Jesus seemed to appeal to his listeners. Now, if we understand the Sabbath was about doing good and not, not doing good, then who obeyed the Sabbath and who violated it? Who obeyed the Sabbath better than anyone in all of human history? And this brings us to lesson five. Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath and the Pharisees violated it. Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath and the Pharisees violated it. So Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath, not in the sense of resting and doing nothing, but he fulfilled it in the true and greatest sense of doing good like people were supposed to do. And so it's really interesting as Jesus was the busiest man in history and because of all the good that Jesus engaged on on the Sabbath, the Sabbath seemed like his busiest day of the week. So here's the thing. If you are not supposed to do good on the Sabbath, who was the worst violator of the Sabbath? I mean, when you consider how busy he was, how much good he did, it seemed to be the one day that Jesus woke up and gave more energy to doing good than any other day. If you weren't supposed to do good on the Sabbath, then Jesus would have been the worst violator of it. Now, the irony is the religious leaders are criticizing Jesus for violating the Sabbath, but they were the worst violators for two reasons. First, they didn't do any good. And second, if you were supposed to do good on the Sabbath, then the logical extension is what are you not supposed to do on the Sabbath? Evil. If you're supposed to do good on the Sabbath, you're not supposed to do evil on the Sabbath, and that is what we see the religious leaders often doing on the Sabbath. In this account, they're going to bring in this poor suffering man and use him as part of their wicked plan. But here's the other thing. In many other accounts, 
What does it say that the religious leaders were often planning or plotting on the Sabbath? How to kill Jesus. So not only were they not doing good, they were using the Sabbath for evil purposes. If you just keep that in mind, I, I didn't want the sermon to go, to go much longer, so I didn't, I didn't bring any examples up. But as you read through the Gospels, look for this from now on and you will see it. On the Sabbath, you have the religious leaders condemning Jesus for doing good while they are often plotting and planning his death, plotting and planning how they can murder him, doing the exact opposite of what the Sabbath was for, instead performing evil. So there's another way to look at Jesus's question. He said, is it lawful to do God on the Sabbath like I'm trying to do, or is it lawful to do evil on the Sabbath like you're trying to do? Who's really keeping the Sabbath? Who's really treating it lawfully, and who's violating it? Now, I want to conclude with this. Isis, I don't, I might be wrong if, if any of you have dropsy, but I suspect that we probably uh, don't. I have never, I haven't seen anyone in our congregation that seems to suffer with this. I don't even know if it's an, if it's an affliction today that we deal with. But I will say this, even if you don't have dropsy, you still have spiritually ruined parts of your body. This man had no idea that Jesus wanted to heal his dropsy. He probably just wondered why he had been invited to the Pharisee's house this day. He shows up, Jesus happens to be there, and then he learns that Jesus, and he must have hoped that Jesus would heal him, but he didn't know this earlier. But I can tell you this, Jesus wants just as much to heal the spiritually sick part of our lives. It's not physical dropsy you're struggling with, but if you're like me, maybe you struggle with unforgiveness. Maybe you struggle with bitterness. Maybe you struggle with a critical spirit. Maybe you struggle with a mouth that's given to gossip. Maybe you struggle with a covetous or discontent heart. Maybe you struggle with eyes that are given over to lust. Maybe you struggle with a lying tongue. We all have these spiritually sick parts of our lives, and they are areas that the Lord wants to heal. Now, if you've never repented and put your faith in Jesus, then you're still spiritually what? You're still spiritually sick. You're worse. You're spiritually dead. You are filled with unforgiven sin. You are filled with unrighteousness. You look infinitely worse spiritually than this man with dropsy looked physically. But if you will repent and you will put your faith in Christ, he will remove your sins. He will remove your unrighteousness. He will give you his righteousness. He will make you as spir- even more spiritually healthy than this man with dropsy was physically after Jesus had healed him. Now, if you have any questions about anything I've shared this morning, I'll be up front after service. I would consider it a privilege to be able to speak with you or pray with you. Father, we thank you for what we see our Savior do in these verses this morning. We thank you for his compassion for others and that what he did for this man physically, he wants to do for us spiritually. Thank you for helping us understand the Sabbath better today. I I hope that it would be something we could apply to our lives to see the importance of doing good and that it wouldn't be something that we we would tire of, not that we would never say no to anything or value the importance of rest in our lives, but that we would be able to discern those things that you would have us do. Um, because as your, as your followers, kind of as we've been talking about in Sunday school, it's one way for us to share Christ with others. It's one way for us to, to bless others, uh, to serve our community, and for people to see Christ through us. Lord, so help us to not tire in doing good, whether it's on the Sabbath or any other day of the week, Lord. Thank you for Christ and what he's done for us. We would never seek to do works or do good to be saved. We just see it as an, as an opportunity to worship you as a result of being saved in, in gratitude and thankfulness for what you have done for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.